0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The finals are upon us. Tatum, Curry, Brown, Thompson, Smart, Wiggins, Horford, Poole, Celtics, Warriors. You can bet on all of the nba finals action with betonline.ag and you can get a 50 percent welcome bonus when you sign up using the link in the description to this episode bet online where the game starts <laughs> Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping in to another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in everybody, it is June 16th according to my count, it may not be that according to your count. But we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. We have a very special episode coming at you today with another famous person joining us on the show. His name is J.T. O'Sullivan. Not only does he have 150,000 followers on YouTube breaking down film for the average football fan, he is a former NFL quarterback of 10 years who literally went to the same college that I went to, lived in the same city that I went to, even lived like five minutes down the street from where I grew up for 10 years. This guy is my type of guy. His name is JT O'Sullivan, and he is joining me and Juju from the Slump Buster podcast on the show today. If you want to watch the YouTube version of it, it's available on the link in the description to this episode. It's on Juju's YouTube channel, so make sure to subscribe to that, because you can see me a whole lot doing fun content and such. So that's coming up later on in the show. I have two A blocks that I want to talk about today. They're both short, less than our normal A blocks, so we'll call it an A half and a B half, or an A half and an A two half. A one, A two, Whatever, the, the Chris Paul, Devin Booker tandem of podcast intros today. So the first thing I want to talk about is the Boston Celtics, because Game 6 of the NBA Finals is coming up tonight, and I wanted to talk about this, one, because we recorded our Game 5 post game from a hotel in San Francisco, and now we're back home again in Sacramento, and because I haven't been at the microphone other than that in like a week, Literally last Thursday, I recorded Friday's podcast. Uh, technically, I recorded for Friday's podcast last week on Tuesday. I recorded with Blake Jude last Thursday. I recorded Monday's podcast last Thursday. I was graduating college. It was kind of part of the whole spiel. And so I wanted to talk about the NBA Finals, and I didn't want to do something that would be like a pregame show because pregame shows on a podcast are incredibly stupid. Even podcasts that are like day-to-day where it's like, Content goes out. Move on to the next one. I didn't want to do a pregame show, and I didn't want to do a podcast that was eulogizing the Boston Celtics. Because while I think the Golden State Warriors are going to win the championship, like I originally predicted, Warriors in 6.5, whether it's 6 or 7 is more semantics, and based on how series outcomes go, the Warriors are going to win the championship Because they're up three games to two, because Boston is, I mean, Boston's relatively healthy, but Robert Williams doesn't play all those minutes. The Boston offense has been shaky. Steph Curry had an awful game in game five, and yet the Golden State Warriors still won. And Boston will make adjustments, and Golden State will make adjustments. And the game six will be really, really interesting. I don't want to eulogize the Celtics because they are the top to bottom better team in this series. And yet it won't matter in the grand scheme of things, because I think at this point Golden State is going to win the championship, whether it's six or seven is semantics. So what I wanted to talk about with the Boston Celtics is the macro conversation about their season, because Boston was not favored against Milwaukee. Boston was not favored against Golden State. Going into the start of the series, Vegas had the Bucks as minus 1 or sorry, the Celtics were favored against the Bucks. I'm sorry. Celtics were minus 160 against Milwaukee. They were minus 150 against the Miami Heat. They were underdogs in the finals against Golden State. And I think of Boston at this point and think the Celtics are playing with house money at this point in the season. They've put together a team defense that was number one in the league post-January by leaps and bounds throughout the season. They know Jason Tatum is a star. He might not be a generational star, he's still a star, and that's something that they weren't certain about even six months ago. They knew he was the best player on the team. They knew that he was good enough to get them to a conference final as the best player on the team, minus the Milwaukee Bucks due to a Giannis injury. And Jason Tatum in this postseason has proved himself as a definitive number one on a team that can make it to the NBA championship in an Eastern Conference that is stronger than the Western Conference by leaps and bounds. The, the four best teams in the NBA might all have been in the East this year if you take out Phoenix gagging all over themselves. It was Philadelphia, it was Milwaukee, it was Boston, and then I guess it would have been Golden State. So at least the three best teams are. All came from there. And that doesn't even include Miami, who was within one game of making it to the NBA Finals as the number one seed in the East. So, Boston is playing with house money. And I haven't backtracked from that from what I was telling Morgan and Juju and talking about it on this podcast. Like, beating the Milwaukee Bucks, Boston was playing with house money after that. And yes, it was a a neutered Milwaukee Bucks team, but the point still stands. Boston was playing with house money At this point, if the Boston Celtics win the championship, it's not going to be like they snuck a championship. It's just going to go down as one of the weaker teams to ever win an NBA championship. And I know that's messed up to say because they had the number one offense and the number one defense during the second half of the season. They are a really good team. I'm not diminishing them the same way I diminish like the Bengals, who only got to the championship because the Chiefs threw up all over themselves. Boston is a really, really good basketball team. And history will look back and say Jason Tatum will probably not be a player who we think of as one of the best of all time generational Talents. Now, he might fit into the Kawhi Leonard mold, and Kawhi Leonard won two championships as the best player on both of those teams. And maybe Tim Duncan was the best player on those uh, 2014 Spurs, but the point still stands. Like, two finals MVPs, two championships. Kawhi was never the best player in the league, except for a six-month period after he won the championship with the Toronto Raptors. Maybe Tatum can fall into that group. It would just be remarkable if Jason Tatum went on a run like this. And the point I still stand there is... Yes, Boston is playing with house money, and yet the Celtics are in the same conundrum of the Phoenix Suns headed into game six. And this isn't the way Boston thinks or Boston fans, but Boston fans, like we talked about with Joe Camo, think that how they think and how they interact affects outcomes of games. Celtics are in the conundrum of last year's Phoenix Suns, which is if you don't win, you weren't expected to be there. And if you don't win you may never get back. Both of those things can be simultaneously true. And that's a really interesting thing for me to look at just from the stakes and storyline side because ultimately, stakes and storylines are the things that drive interest in sports. And this is a storyline. The Boston Celtics being down three games to you on the brink of after that game four, we talked about if you're Boston, you're the better team and it's looking like there's a chance you might lose three games in a row to Golden State. Game 4, Game 5, and Game 6. It's looking like an ever more real possibility going into this Game 6. I don't know what the result of the game is going to be. It just looks like it's an ever increasing possibility as Steph Curry shoots 0 for 9 from 3. And the Warriors uh, machine gets broken up because Boston takes their number 1 defense and says deny Steph Curry shots. Deny, deny, deny Steph Curry shots. That's what we're going to do with our number 1 defense. And... The Boston Celtics gave up 67% shooting on two-pointers to the Golden State Warriors, and they themselves failed to score 100 points in the last game. And it's really interesting as they go into this last game, and I don't want to hope, I hyper-examine or over-examine this, it's why I'm stretching it out to where we were talking about four weeks ago, or six weeks ago, even during the, the Brooklyn series, and the Milwaukee series, and even some in the Miami series, which is... Boston is playing with house money at this point and it also might be their best chance to win a championship because they benefited from the Brooklyn Nets having just an absolute tire fire of a season and Milwaukee not having Chris Middleton in the playoffs and that Max Strus shot getting called back because he was stepping on the line and then throwing up all over themselves against Miami. Maybe this is maybe Boston also is the benefactor of All of that and a Golden State Warriors collapse, the likes of which we saw maybe a few years ago, but would not expect from Golden State at this point. The Suns collapsed this year versus Dallas in what most people thought was their best chance to win a championship, even over last year when they were up two games to zero against the Milwaukee Bucks. And their window feels closed. It feels like everyone's about to jump Phoenix in the West, and for Boston, I'm not sure that's the same case, although it is really difficult to keep up team-centric defense and team-centric winning because it requires every link to work in perfect confluence. And the Celtics got this perfect combination of team defense and five guys scoring 15 points a game like we talked about where there, it will be difficult to replicate that because you need impeccably good health, and a perfect combination of everyone playing great defense at the same time, which wasn't the case in 2020, wasn't the case in 2021, and wasn't the case until like the last three months of this season. So I'm really interested in the stake and storyline of Boston before Game 6, which you are favored in, and there's a chance they'll win. You are playing with house money in this entire series And it also might be your best chance to win a championship playing the probabilities. I think that's really interesting. And I'm excited to see what happens in this game six for the Boston Celtics.
1: Spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray
0: All right, we've done A1, now A2. It's baseball-related. I've been watching a lot of baseball the last few days. It's an interesting time where I have free time all of a sudden, and it gives me a chance to go to baseball games in San Francisco. I went to Monday and Tuesday. I watched the A's play the Red Sox. It was 10 to 1, but I got paid to watch the A's play the Red Sox. And it also gave me time to read an interesting baseball story about Shohei Otani. And I know baseball can sometimes be monotonous because the games don't matter and the regular season is long and each individual game, it all evens out over time, blah, 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 that's the thing with baseball. As the Angels lose 14 straight games and fire Joe Madden, and now they have a 25% chance to make the playoffs and their roster's poorly constructed and all that stuff, Shohei Otani can hit free agency after 2023 and it looks like contract talks with the Angels are starting to break down. And I thought there was a really interesting parallel between Shohei Ohtani and Aaron Judge. I mean, technically the Angels are Los Angeles. I know it's it's Orange County. The two premier cities of baseball, potentially looking at the long-term effects of overspending and not prioritizing long-term flexibility, coming back to bite them and losing the players that I thought were Uh, Not disposable at all. I didn't think there was any scenario where Aaron Judge wouldn't be playing with the Yankees until his body fell apart. And I didn't think there would be any scenario where Shohei Otani would not be playing in an Angels uniform because I assumed the Angels would pay Shohei Otani whatever amount they would have to to keep him in an Angels uniform because Shohei Otani was branded as... The next Babe Ruth and the next face of baseball, not just when he first got there, but last year specifically when he hit 46 homers and pitched a three ERA and was easily the MVP and the face of video games and all that stuff. I thought it was Shohei Otani leading into the post Mike Trout era and the two of them would finally be able to take the Angels over the edge. And Aaron Judge was the first New York baseball star. And really, if you look at all of New York sports with the Giants ass for a a decade. Giants, have welcome to another decade of mediocrity for the Giants. Decade of mediocrity for the Jets. Mets, uh, terrible. Um, The New York Knicks, terrible. Aaron Judge was the first New York star post-Derek Jeter. And I thought that would be something that was irreplaceable, considering that the Yankees haven't found someone quite like the drama that was Aaron Judge. Like, Giancarlo Stanton is an amazing baseball player. Garrett Cole is an amazing baseball player. And they spent a lot of money on those players. I just assumed... That Aaron Judge, who's still playing great baseball, like I can understand people making the argument he's 31 years old. You don't want to pay 30 million a year if you're the Yankees, especially when you have all these contracts already doled out and it locks you in for five years at 30 million a year and you can't sign anyone up. Like, I understand the baseball centric arguments for letting Aaron Judge walk in free agency. I just didn't think it would happen because of what Aaron Judge was being sold as as a storyline for New York, and how in 2017, he was the guy who was the MVP. I mean, he finished second in the MVP behind Altuve, but he was the best player on the revived Yankees who came within one game of making the World Series, and he was the face of New York sports. Post-Derek Jeter, there was just a, a doldrum of New York sports And Aaron Judge was that star. And I didn't think there was a scenario where Aaron Judge was going to leave. And now Aaron Judge, after this offseason, looks like he's going to leave the New York Yankees. Because the Yankees didn't negotiate an extension years in advance when he would have been cheaper than what he's getting right now. And Aaron Judge is also leading baseball in home runs. So it looks like there's a really easy situation where Aaron Judge is about to leave the New York Yankees after six, seven years. And after six years, Shohei Ohtani is going to leave the Anaheim Angels. I just didn't think those things were plausible for those two players specifically. And this article I was reading was talking about the financial situations for the Angels. How they have already committed the most money to any, of any Major League Baseball team through the year 2025. Mike Trout is going to make over 30 million a year. Rendon is going to make between 25 and 30 million a year through I think it's 3 more years or Rendon, I think it's it's 5 more years. For Trout, it's like 9 more years on his contract. And the Angels theoretically could pay the highest payroll in baseball and just keep paying people like that the way that the the Yankees have done, the way the Dodgers have done, the way the Giants have done, with smarter roster construction. But they have paid that. Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, has operated under the salary cap, which is not an actual salary cap. It's a luxury tax threshold. Five teams usually break that every year. So in order to be one of the five highest spending teams, you have to pay luxury tax. Artie Moreno has always stopped at the luxury tax every year since the first year that Albert Pujols, or sorry, every year since the luxury tax has gone into effect, the only time he was a top five highest paid, the Angels were a top five payroll in baseball was the first year post-Albert Pujols' contract in 2012. And so the Angels could either pay luxury tax and keep everyone around, or if Artie Moreno treats the luxury tax like a salary cap, trade either Mike Trout or Anthony Rendon. And Anthony Rendon is untradeable at this point, unless they attach a whole lot of picks or players or eat a bunch of money, which eating a bunch of money would defeat the purpose of trading him. And Mike Trout is going to be one of those guys that it looks like they are going to let retire an angel, even if it means coming at the expense of losing Shohei Otani. It's what Mike Trout means as the greatest baseball player of the last 25, 30, 40 years my lifetime greatest baseball player ever, this is the cost that the Angels are willing to accept in order to pay up Mike Trout's gigantic contract and keep him in Anaheim forever. And Shohei Otani can sign that contract, and then the Angels will continue to miss the playoffs every year because they can't build a farm system. Their farm system's ranked 27th in baseball, and they're not going to spend more money after the contracts they've already doled out. Maybe that's the situation Otani takes and there's a price that can be paid to keep him in Anaheim. It just seems like in contract talks, both sides acknowledge that Otani is worth more than Max Scherzer's $43 million per year. And it's like a plus five, six, seven year contract deal. And both sides are kind of balking at it. At which point I look at that and I'm like, oh, okay, so Otani's going to leave. If they, if they acknowledge he is worth this and the Angels simply don't want to pay it, then Otani is, is going to be gone unless they pay a premium for losing. And I just didn't think there was a scenario where Judge and Otani would both be headed out the door of New York and Los Angeles. I thought of all the players in baseball, those were the two that would be still in place because like I said earlier, Judge was sold as the King of New York and Otani was sold as the next Babe Ruth, who connotates, you know, old-timey baseball greatness of being able to pitch and throw and all that blah, blah, blah. Revitalization of young people in baseball. Face of the game, Shohei Otani. I thought those two players would be ones that nobody would let go. And it looks like the uh, the Yankees and Angels are about to do both of those. And I find it incredibly fascinating how we got there, because it can be dumbed down as simple as, The Yankees have the second most money committed to players post-2025, three years from now. They didn't prioritize long-term cap flexibility, and the Angels are number one. They both went all-in on the moves that they had and the players they could find, and it looks like the costs are going to be Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani, the same way the Boston Red Sox gave out seven bad contracts, and it cost them Mookie Betts. Because they weren't willing to pay Mookie Betts forty million a year, and Mookie Betts got that from the Dodgers. And there's, by the way, there's reports this week Mookie Betts is unhappy with the Dodgers, and he you know he went on a podcast and or an interview after the game. I can't remember what it was. I think it was an interview after the game, and he was like, "I wish I could be still with the the Red Sox." It was ultimately the best decision for me to go to the Dodgers which basically is, I wish I could be making the money I have on the Dodgers playing for the Boston Red Sox. That was the first choice for Mookie Betts, and he couldn't take his cake and eat it, and so he ended up going to the Dodgers, and he seems just a little bit less happy on the Dodgers than he was playing for the Boston Red Sox. And Otani and Judge are in the same camp where their teams didn't prioritize long-term flexibility value these players at what the market dictates they are like are willing to pay what other teams will pay for Aaron Judge and for Shohei Otani and both teams are kind of balking at the idea because now is when they decide they need to prioritize long-term flexibility when it comes to the king of New York the king of New York sports from 2017 to 2020 and the next Babe Ruth that's where they've decided to cost cut, and I just didn't think there was a scenario where we'd get to that point. Lo and behold, we're here. It happened with Mookie Betts, it's about to happen to Aaron Judge this offseason, and a year from now it'll happen with Shohei Otani. So now, that's our A2 block, we did our A1 block, let's welcome in our good friend JTO O'Sullivan and UC Davis alum J.T. O'Sullivan to the Take It Easy podcast.
1: Slubbusters and thank you for joining us Vacation was fun but it's time to get back On that grind and what a great way to do it Joining us, former NFL Quarterback, former NFL Europe quarterback UC Davis legend and the host of the QB school, JT Osullivan. JT I've been loving your channel, man. I definitely started, like, binging a lot more of the content uh, last year during the playoff run. I loved, like, your Jim Garoppolo breakdowns, your Patrick Mahomes breakdowns. Great channel for, like, the average person that's not, like, necessarily a film junkie to kind of, like, start to learn more of that side of what a quarterback sees on the field. What made you gravitate towards the streaming route as opposed to, like, getting more into the hard coaching or maybe even working in an NFL front office? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for checking it
2: out supporting it i certainly appreciate it and try to have fun with it there are many answers to that question the, the easiest one for me is just i was not interested in moving around a lot fortunate enough to play as long as i played I, I moved around quite a bit and i'm just interested in you know being a little settled doing the whole father thing and uh that's not necessarily in the best interest of our crew to be moving around every you know year when i get fired or move up but uh you know it's just worked out that this is uh, kind of taken on a little bit of a life of its own and found its own little uh, niche, so to speak. But I, I really have a, a blast with it and really try to cover all the buckets that I enjoy as, like, as a fan, as a former player, as a coach, as someone who's just interested in learning more about the game to try to provide a, kind of a lens into how I learn and, and want to share.
0: So I have a quarterback question for you that goes back to last year because i i guess as someone who watched college football back in the pandemic i suppose i really thought that justin fields was going to be someone whose game projected well to the nfl and obviously he slid down to the fourth quarterback in 2021 and then last year was kind of a mixed bag of results for for most of the rookie quarterbacks so what did you think of justin fields when he was coming into the nfl and then what have you made so far of fields and what the chicago bears are doing and how that's going to work out for him I love
2: Justin Fields coming out. I think I had him rated as my favorite guy. You know, I, I think there's a few different reasons why he maybe, quote unquote, slid. I think he was still, you know, a top 15 pick, whatever he was. Uh, I don't know how if you guys ever got drafted, but that's not sliding that far from coming from a guy who, you know, was closer to 200. That's a slide. But, you know, there's a, there's a reason why those teams are picking quarterbacks that early. They're usually significant deficiencies on the roster. And, uh, you know, obviously the Bears had that. They also have made a coaching change. You know, I think you could make an argument that Justin Fields' surrounding cast right now is probably as poor as anybody in the NFL. And so I think we're all kind of, at least I am, as a fan of Justin Fields, you know, I'm kind of hoping for the best but preparing myself for the worst as far as what this year potentially looks like. But anytime you get a new coach, new staff, you know, you're not surrounded by, you know, a bunch of Hall of Famers. You know, you have the potential to be in a real, real tough situation. And so I personally think his skill set is as dynamic as anyone in that class. You know, I think you, need, you really need like a half a decade to kind of see, let it settle a little bit to know for sure. But I'm still really high on Justin Fields and think he's, he's got a lot, uh, a lot of great opportunity to be the, be a star at the league
1: level. It's great talking to you today, JT, because actually when I was growing up, like I remember seeing you on my screen watching Niners games. I'm a big-time Niners fan myself, and the quarterback position for them over the last 10 to 20 years has been one of the more interesting things coming off of like the Montana era, the Steve Young era. Um, none more interesting than last year's situation with Trey Lance drafted number three overall, Jimmy Garoppolo still on the roster, and a uh, – Twitter civil war of Niners fans saying start the young kid or start the veteran. How much can a quarterback learn on the bench? Like I said, the Twitter civil war has been last year since you didn't win the Super Bowl was a waste. But I don't agree with that, and I don't think Kyle Shanahan agrees with that. Uh, I think you can make an
2: argument for both sides of it. I think when you give up what they gave up, draft pick wise and capital for that position, that pick, I think the expectation was that they were going to play immediately. You know, I, I think time will tell. You know, if he. Say he sits, say he has like a Patrick Mahomes ish year this first year, and then, well, everyone will say oh, that's great because he sat behind Alex Smith, where he learned from Jimmy Garoppolo, and so the outcome uh, will kind of dictate how we view the process. But I personally would have loved to have seen him play. Uh, that's just me selfishly as a, as a quarterback fan. I think it probably made that offense a little bit more dynamic. It wouldn't have been, you know, maybe as uh, as perfectly efficient as Shanahan would love it to be. But I think time will tell with the development of what Trey Lance becomes. You know, I think, again, you're looking at significant change on that staff. You know, specifically on the offensive side of the ball, obviously Shanahan's still being Shanahan. But he's got a new quarterback coach, uh, a new technically a new offense coordinator. You know, there's some new faces over there. And so whatever that looks like, for them moving forward and how fast they can put that together uh, will certainly be part of the puzzle. But I think as someone who's just a fan of high-level quarterback play, I'm really excited to see Trey Lance's skill set. I think he just hasn't played a lot of football. You know, if you go all the way back to his Bison days, they really had a COVID-strain year. I think he played that one kind of fall game. And so he just hasn't played a lot of football. And I think that, as much as anything else, and you can't get that from the bench, especially when you have a condensed Preseason, So there just aren't enough opportunities for him to get those live reps to get better in real time. So I think that's the thing that most 49er fans should be that excited about is the acceleration of his improvement when he's playing because I think that will be fun to watch happen in real time.
0: So I wanted to ask you about Zach Wilson because it's been hard for me to kind of evaluate what I've been seeing from Zach Wilson, not just because I didn't like watch much of him, but last year you kind of throw out a lot of the stats because of how poor that Jets team was. Uh, but he did have a really low completion percentage last year and everyone had been conditioned to be like completion percentage is something that doesn't adjust year over year and then Josh Allen happened and it changed the math and and we've seen Kyler Murray improve completion percentage by 10 points since his rookie season so is there concern around Zach Wilson's ability to complete passes because he had a lot of like flash in the pan moments during the season and you know a lot of incompletions and more interceptions than touchdowns and things of those sorts so is a completion percentage in the 50s something that will probably correct itself as the jets develop an offense and put more talent around him and and things of those sorts
2: Uh, i think that all of those variables you mentioned will play a factor in his completion percentage rising you know i I think it's a combination of as simple a thing as you know being in games more as opposed to feeling like you're behind you got to chuck it you got to chuck it downfield you got to take shots that normally you wouldn't want to take i also think the game will probably slow down a little bit for him as he gets more and more experience at the league level i think the offense will continue to kind of fine-tune itself to take advantages of what his strengths are now the other part of that the flip side of that is that some of his strengths are that just playmaking ability that he can create off platform and so those things aren't necessarily tethered to timing completion percentage you know the, the reason why so many of those completion percentages are jacked up from what they were 10 15 20 years ago is because the way the game has evolved to a little bit more of a horizontal, spread them out, quick screens, you know, different ways to get RPOs, to get completions, that really are just extended handoffs. But incorporating that into and not losing what I think the Jets drafted Zach Wilson to do, and that's to be an elite playmaker. And when things break down, that he can extend and create. And so finding that sweet spot for what that looks like, uh, you know, I think is is still TBD. You know, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to play the way that he played at BYU consistently on Sundays. And so as he continues to find whatever that middle ground looks like for him to be as efficient as he can be, but also you don't want to sit in those meetings and be like, hey, bro, we need you to throw this guy on time every play. Well, if it's blurry, you know, you got to go make something happen. And then that's when you're at your best. And so we want you at your best, but you also can't throw the ball to the other team. You know, there were a couple of interceptions where he's just trying to do Way too much, and it, it, it's not the same as you know beating the hell out of some Mountain West team. I mean, there, there are different ways to
1: be able to to incorporate his strengths with what they're able to do and trying to do as a team to win more games. Obviously, a big part of your channel the last couple months has been breaking down this incoming rookie class. Who stood out to you the most through your evaluations? Oh, I'm trying to think who I had ranked at the top of it. Uh, I
2: personally love Malik Willis. You know, I think he's got a huge upside. You know, now, again, uh, and I try to say this on the channel quite a bit, but so much of this is luck about where you end up. You know, I, I think Kenny Pickett is potentially in a really good situation because that organization over the long term has proven that they're stable. They have stable ownership, stable head coach. You know, there might be transition on the coaching side as far as who's calling the plays, but that organization has proven over the years that they're a sound, stable, winning championship culture. And so not everybody is in that situation as opposed to someone maybe like Desmond Ritter who's in a spot where he might get a chance to play. You know, I'm not sure the Falcons, uh, what their roster looks like as far as competing with everyone else, but the NFC South is tough with Tampa Bay. And so all these guys are in different situations, whether it's Howell Carroll with the Panthers, those guys, all those situations, none of those situations are great for a quarterback. You know, that, that's the thing where you look at a guy like Trey Lance maybe where you're like, these guys moved up to get him. They identified him. They went and got him. That roster is a Super Bowl caliber roster. You know, none of these other young guys are coming into really a Super Bowl caliber roster, you know, maybe with the, the exception of the Tennessee Titans. But, you know, obviously Tannehill is probably going to play, at least for the significant future. And so the the outlook for this class is just different than what I think the expectations were for the previous class.
0: So Corral is an interesting case in Carolina, and you mentioned him kind of briefly there, because he's a third-round pick, and obviously third-round picks are more so as like backup quarterback roles, or at least that's what the team kind of intends in the first place, because otherwise they would have invested higher draft capital in the quarterback. But the Panthers aren't really trying to compete this year. They still have Darnold under contract for a year, so does it really... Behoove them to play Corral at some point during the season, uh, even though they've kind of got like a mishmash of quarterbacks on the roster and uh, a new offensive coordinator in Ben McAdoo. Yeah, I, I don't
2: have good an answer, and I'm not going to pretend to know what the hell the Carolina Panthers are doing. You know, they're, they're <laughs> fixing to be all, in all sorts of trouble, and so it's uh, it's one of those things where you know they they obviously identified Carroll as their guy this you know round and. Are going to stick with sam and see what happens and let that whole thing compete but that thing sure has has the potential to go sideways really quick and probably see a significant amount of change that organization over the next calendar year
1: you mentioned a lot of these situations aren't ideal and a lot of them are with new coaches coming in i think of trevor lawrence out there in jacksonville obviously coming from the disaster year with urban meyer and now they have doug peterson there how difficult is it for a quarterback to deal with changes at offensive coordinator, a head coach, especially in those developmental years? I think it's always
2: a challenge. I think, you know, maybe the more times you go through it, it becomes a little bit easier. But for a guy like Trevor Lawrence and just trying to put ourselves in his shoes, you know, you go from really, for lack of a better phrase, you know, a complete dumpster fire in what that first year was far as leadership, head coach, organization, the whole experience to someone like Doug who comes with a Super Bowl, who played the quarterback position at a really high level for a long time, who's gonna be able to stabilize the position and allow him to create an environment where Trevor Lawrence can be more consistently successful and hopefully put that organization on the track to being a more consistent contender. Now will it happen immediately? Who knows? But I think just from like being able to take a deep breath and know, hey, you're the quarterback, your head coach was a quarterback, he's won the Super Bowl. He's got all sorts of intangible benefits that he'll bring to stabilizing and increasing the quality of Trevor Lawrence's performance.
0: So the last quarterback that we haven't mentioned from the 2021 class would be one Mac Jones, who he was in the Pro Bowl. I feel like they had to call like nine people to get him to the Pro Bowl last year. So how do you feel about how the Patriots have worked him into the offense? Because it looks different than what it was two years ago and different than what it was with Cam Newton and now... Their offense still isn't great, but it's done enough to be stable. And and obviously the Patriots made the playoffs last year. So what have you made of Mac Jones as the quarterback of the Patriots so far?
2: I mean, I think Mac Jones is in a a really great position. You know, I I think that losing Josh McDaniels is certainly going to rearrange the way that he plays the position and the preparation and what that organization looks like offensively. You know, the whole kind of facade of a clown show as far as who's not, who's calling plays, who's not calling plays. I don't think that matters at all to be honest with you. I think that what matters is Mac Jones' continual improvement. And I think that there were times last year, really in the middle of the season, where he played at a really high level. And then there were other times where it felt like he was really struggling and things were happening too fast for him and maybe the season got a little long on him. And it was just, it was tough at at certain stretches. And so as he's able to kind of, uh, you know, condense the peaks and the valleys to make everything a little bit higher as far as the consistency of his play and what they're asking him to do, I think he's in the potential to be in a great situation. For Mac Jones, the thing that I'm looking for is just the continued improvement. You know, again, coming from a guy who didn't play a lot in college, when he played, he played really well, but you want the leaps of improvement to happen early in these guys' careers so that they, using an example like Josh Allen as an outlier is not a great example, but you want steady quality improvement every single year in your first offseason, especially as the starting quarterback, is a great opportunity for you to influence the team, to come into your own as a role, to become a master of your system, and to just elevate everything that you're doing and, in course, elevate that offense. And So I would look for them to take a step in the right direction regardless of the kind of periphery of like who's calling plays, who's not calling plays, you know, I I think it will matter less once we get into the season, and Mac Jones continues to be consistently improving every single week over the course of the entire season, and eliminate kind of the huge peaks and valleys.
1: Like I said, your channel is very important for, like, the average Joe to understand film, but do you have, like, young guys occasionally reach out to you and kind of, like, ask for help on breaking down film? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things
2: where I'm really fortunate that I feel like, it touches a number of different buckets as far as people that resonate with the content. And so there will be young guys trying to learn the position. There will be, you know, diehard fans that just want more information that feel like they don't have access to information. And then there will there will be coaches that are interested in, in learning the ways that different things are communicated. And then everybody's uh, you know, even if they pretend that they're a defensive guy, they're always sort of interested in what's going on with the quarterback position. And rightfully so because you touch the ball every single play and you can influence the play even when you don't necessarily have to carry the ball or make a decision with the ball and so all those things kind of go we interweave together but for me honestly the content that I put out on the channel is just what I think is interesting like I, I certainly love when I get suggestions that I haven't thought of before and I try to go down those rabbit holes but for me it's just hey I think this offense is interesting I think this guy is playing really well how's he doing it and to be able to take a little bit
0: deeper look then you just can't do those deep dives with a broadcast view
2: know on a Sunday or on a Saturday you got to be able to pull the layers back and watch the all 22 watch it a number of times you know draw something up for someone who's maybe not familiar with that term or concept and and kind of pull it back but then be able to put it all together and realize not always you know I think it's easy to be like oh the guy threw 10 interceptions all 10 of those are on the quarterback well in reality you know maybe half of them were poor offensive you know poor pass protection the other two the wide receiver ran the wrong route one was a tip ball and so you start to peel back the layers just like you would do you know if we were in a quarterback meeting room in the league and so you, you kind of try to understand the holistic uh, impact of what that position has to deal with and i think people resonate with that because you know it feels like they haven't had access to that information at such a you know, in-depth, consistent level.
0: So last question I have for you is uh, less of a football one and more of just talking about, uh, our favorite college, UC Davis, uh, because JT was a, uh, famous D2 quarterback at UC Davis. I live in Davis right now. It's pretty cool. Uh, tell people why this little tiny like city in the middle of nowhere, California is the most amazing place in the entire world. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I don't know if I go that far, but
2: it's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, For me, it was just a really special place. I I really lucked into how I ended up there. I ended up meeting my wife there. Our third son is named Davis, so it certainly resonates with us. And I try to get up there, you know, usually at least, you know, once a year, maybe every other year, see if I can catch a football game, catch picnic day. And just one of those places where it really made a huge impact on me. And uh, I try to uh, give back as much as I possibly can. But, man, it just... uh, it's a really special place. It's one of those unique college towns in on the West Coast. It really doesn't exist anywhere else, in my opinion, in California specifically. But it's uh, you know it's one of those, and it's just uh, it's just weird enough for me. You know, I, I love a little farmer's market. Love the whole like bicycle culture. It's just a it's a cool unique vibe that I had a blast in an absolute blast. Maybe too much fun sometimes, but uh, it's one of those things that I really enjoy. So I it's cool to see people also like yourself have a good time there and and enjoy their experience but you know it's one of those things where for me i always feel super fortunate that i just ended up there
1: thanks again man thank you for coming on today really appreciate your time uh how the heck do you not have a blue check mark on twitter like come the channel's blowing up man you have over a hundred thousand subscribers on youtube